Are you an ambitious, driven entrepreneur starting to feel overwhelmed, maybe a little trapped by your business? Well, I have a solution for you. It is the five-day bottleneck to breakthrough challenge, where in an hour a day, we will give you the roadmap, the blueprint, the treasure map to where you can find yourself with more free time, more freedom of money, and a more valuable business. Hope to see you soon www.bottlenecktobreakthrough.com. If you have a product idea or a software idea, this episode is for you. We're going to talk about the different stages of product development. We're going to talk about whether you need a chief technology officer. We're going to talk about supplier redundancy and innovation as a service. So enjoy this episode. This is The Real Bottom Line, where we tell entrepreneurial stories about true grit and perseverance from frontline business owners themselves. Now, let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Real Bottom Line. Today, my guest is Sufuji Gosh from Phi Labs. It is a company out of Hamilton and it's heavy into the tech field, but Sufuji, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, how did you start out? Uh, and give me a little path before you got to Phi Labs. Absolutely. And thank you, Wendy, for having me on this. Uh, so I'm uh, one of those uh, serial failed entrepreneurs in a way. I'm on my third company right now. Uh, and in my previous companies, uh, in, in the startup phase, what I realized, uh, well, what I struggled with a lot was that in the early days, getting a product developed, I couldn't afford full-time people. Uh. And so I ended up working with freelancers, sometimes offshore uh, contracting houses. And it ended up being uh, quite a struggle because uh, you know, I got billed by the hour. I was juggling multiple vendors. It was uh, like uh, I was being billed by the hour and I was paying for it, but I, that, that did not necessarily guarantee that I could get the results delivered by paying X amount of dollars. Uh, and that has a financial uh, thing to it, but there's also the whole timeline thing to it. When you're in a startup, you're always under the gun. Yeah. Uh, you have a finite amount of a runway and a finite amount of money, and you have to get to the finish line before the runway runs out. And uh, so that, I struggled with that a lot in my first startup, a little bit less maybe in my second startup. And then I realized that you know what, this doesn't have to be this complicated. The problem that I'm facing, I have a lot of friends who are founders and they face the exact same thing. So can I spin an organization that has a service that would give a guaranteed product within a finite time and price point? Uh, so uh, I played around it just like any other startup story goes initially within, within a sandbox with like friendly customers, but turns out like, this can be easily delivered, especially in the uh, world that we live in today, where a lot of knowledge is available free and openly. Uh, there's a lot of open source software available, open source hardware is available, uh, like not open source, I mean, off the shelf uh, uh, commodity hardware pieces available and a lot of knowledge available that you can, all you got to do is just look. So I created this service out of those, uh -huh. uh, which essentially, that's exactly what I said. It de-risks the product development process for founders by turning it into a fixed price and a fixed timeline. What is interesting is that you call yourself a serial failed entrepreneur, but in my mind, after I listen to your story, 
it's almost like they were data points for you. Like if you hadn't gone through those experiences, you wouldn't end up with the with the company you have today. Yeah, uh, and to quote the Eagles, it wasn't really wasted time. I guess I <laughs> date myself when I quote the Eagles, but <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. We all like the Eagles. Okay, so now you've started this thing. What other lessons did you learn from the first two startups? Well, uh, translated through into building something that is now very successful. Well, first and foremost uh, was to de-risk every single thing possible. Uh, so, well, no, actually the first and foremost, which is almost implied but often get missed, is that uh, laser focus on your customers. Okay. The most foundational thing about any startup is a customer. Uh-huh. And by customer, I mean someone who is willing to pay for their problem to be solved. You have to identify what that problem is uh-huh. and identify who has that problem. Uh, and uh, you know, now I work with exclusively with startups. I've worked with over 100 startups in the last two years, uh, less than two years that I've run Five Labs. Wow. Uh, the, one, the startups that I see succeed the most are the ones that are very clear about their problem definition and knowing who their customer is. But there happens to be, unfortunately, another class of startups. Uh, and I was one of these guys earlier in my career where you come up with a, this really cool idea and you have a couple of friends who think it's a really cool idea and therefore you turn it into a startup. But that often is the recipe for failure. That's how my first company died. It was a really cool idea. It would have changed the world, but it would have never uh, made it into the market as a commercial success. Right. So uh, that was the biggest lesson that I learned. So. Problem definition, how do you advise your startups now? Like when you're having this conversation, you say some are so laser focused on this problem. What, how are they defining the problem? What work are they doing to know that this is a good problem to solve? Um, so there's many systematic ways to doing that. Uh, I'm a big fan of Steve Blank's method, which I learned in the NSF Innovation Core program that I went to earlier. In, in my career of like you know, having a business model canvas where you put in hypothesis then go out and do real customer discovery. And like from those early days, I still have Steve Blank's voice in my head that says, get out of the building, get out of the building. And I kind of uh, uh, internalized that early on in my career. But you know, talking to people, trying to understand whether they have the problem or not mm. is the most important, uh, uh, is the best way. And I personally, the way I like to do it is I would try to identify who my customers might be for a specific problem and then go ask them very generic questions like what keeps you up at night? What's your biggest problem you're facing right now? If within the first 10 minutes of a conversation, they bring up the problem that I thought was an actual problem worth solving, then that's a yay. If they don't, then the problem I'm trying to solve is probably not very relevant. Hmm. So it's not, so by doing it in that way, like you're circling around the whole company, you're not planting a seed about the problem you're trying to solve to make them bring it up. You're seeing if they do it organically. Yeah. Uh, Nudge them in that direction if you have to a little bit, but if it's a relevant enough problem, they'll talk again. Hmm. Interesting. Now this is, this is, so, you know, there's no perfect method of doing this. So this is a way of doing it. There will still be people who would never talk about a problem that they're facing, maybe because they're shy or not comfortable sharing it. Uh, so, and there are other ways, other various other ways of doing customer discovery, including focus groups and 
know, people who have more uh, resources can engage in a lot more, like actual primary market surveys and things like that. But if you're an absolute bare bones startup, bootstrapping in your early days, uh-huh. what do you do? You can't really hire a marketing firm or like a market search analysis firm to go out there and do market research for you. This is one way to do that, which only takes your time and a lot of courage, I guess. And it I feels think- like though it feels like true success is almost predicated. It's more it's more likely you'll have success if you spend that time. It's more likely. It's substantially more likely. Like I have this hypothesis. You know how they say there's this common saying, right? Nine out of ten startups fail. Right. And if you were to split startups into two groups, where one group is companies that were started having a good having a foundation in a well understood problem definition, mm-hmm. and the other group being uh, companies that were started because they had a really advanced technology or unique product that the founders thought would or hypothesized would solve the problem. Mm -hmm. I've never done the actual study, but I speculate uh, that the success Uh, rate of group A is substantially higher than group B. Sounds like a good grad project. (laughs) (laughs) Not for you. You can pass it on. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe if someone listens to this podcast and takes it on, I would love to see the studies or even sponsor the study. Yeah, there you go. Okay, so that's so they've understood the problem definition, and then they're running into these startups, especially in the tech fields, are running into this problem that to do the full-on development, you need resources. You need the, to build a front end. You need to build a back end. You have to decide on your tech stack, all these pieces. Um, and the typical model in the past has been go get funding, hire full-time people. Yep. So you're coming in with a different alternative. Can you talk a little bit more about your innovation as a service concept? Absolutely. So you know, like we were just talking about, eyes on the price for the families. Their most important thing is to understand their customers. Mm-hmm. So they often get a technical co-founder who's now responsible with building the uh, product. Mm-hmm. And a pro- some products are simple enough that one person can handle. Mm-hmm. Some uh, products are simple enough that you can hire a freelancer to build it for you. Mm-hmm. But any product that's a little bit more complex than that, something that requires both hardware and software, for instance, now you're dealing with multiple freelancers, unless you can afford to hire your own team. Hiring your own team is very difficult for a startup because you can only afford to hire maybe one or two people. Mm-hmm. And then... You know, they come in, they take time to be onboarded, they may or may not work out, they go on vacation, they get poached by other companies. It's a very risky proposition. Uh-huh. Uh, so you end up with a setup where you don't know how much it's going to cost. So the second alternative that people have adopted over the years is to go to freelancers who are experts in these fields. Okay. So you need something uh, that involves a IoT sensor and some software. You yep. would hire a freelancer who understands electronics, PCB design or embedded systems, and a software developer. Uh, each one of them have their own specialties. They yes. And now you have two different contracts with two different vendors, and you have to manage the relationship between them because freelancers, by definition, don't very, work very well with each other. These are the problems that I face. You know how I say that you have to really know your problem that's worth solving? That so, you were solving a problem. <laughs> I know. I was solving a problem. Yeah. Uh, I said, why not create a team that's available for hire 
that has multiple skill sets within it. So to this day, I've built a team that has uh, software capabilities, embedded systems, AI, ML, industrial design, uh, robotics, uh, comp computational modeling, et cetera. Uh, this kind of an interdisciplinary team is what estab more established companies would have. Startups mm -hmm. can't afford. Yeah. But by almost as a cost sharing model, really, mm -hmm. we make this kind of a skill, like a pool of skills diversity accessible to startup founders. That's what I call innovation as a service. It's like saying, uh, so with this kind of a team, you basically throw the problem at the team yeah. and they solve it for you. So the startup founder can focus on their, uh, what is most foundational to them, which is like customer discovery, understanding the problems, understanding the customers, as long as they can articulate the requirements back to a team like ours, we can deliver the product. Now, there's a, uh, often people ask, so should I get technical co-founder or should I hire you guys? Right. Uh, and uh, there's a, and so th that's a little bit of a, like the way I like to always put it is there's no substitute for a technical co-founder. Someone internal to the company or the business has to understand what's going on with the product and manage the product life cycle. We are kind of mercenaries. We're not the general, if you know what I mean. So you're the specialists that are going to come in with a defined outcome and then move on. Yeah. And we do care about our customer success. But yes. we would never care enough about our customer success that our customer themselves would. Yes. And that's why having a technical co-founder is always important. We do not replace a technical co-founder. You augment. We augment. We uh, basically de-risk the development process overseen by the technical co-founder. Right. So it feels like when you use the innovation as a service and the way that you and Phi Labs have put together, it's really about number one, you've gotten an established team that knows how to work together and you've kind of taken away the black box around price and timing. Do you know what I mean? Or the, the, the hole where you don't know, it, it's not as murky. Yeah, it's, uh, we've kind of turned, I guess we have turned a rabbit hole into a, not a black box, but a box. So right, but uh, that you can actually know what the box looks like and works how it's going to work for you. Yeah, exactly. So you know the so whether the found uh, the you know the uh, technical co-founder uh, or like the main founder, whoever it might be, instead of hiring their own team or hiring freelancers, where it's a rabbit hole, they don't know. Like they can figure out what their uh, you know biweekly payroll or their hourly rates are for those two groups of resources, but they can never know for sure how much it's going to cost them and how long it's going to take to get the product developed to a point. Whereas uh, I had to create like, uh, to solve this particular problem, I had to create a business model where yes. we showed, we give them a price. We say, that's going to cost $20,000. We'll take you six weeks. Like, yeah, yeah. Make up numbers here, but uh, that's the whole thing. You have to know how much it's going to cost, how long it's going to take if you're to seriously de-risk product development. Your business is making a profit. You're growing, but you may still feel like you don't fully have a grasp on how to make the best use of this success. Don't worry, you're not alone. Hi, I'm Wendy Brookhouse, creator of the Total Wealth Accelerator and host of this podcast. I've developed a quick and easy tool that will give you a detailed snapshot of where you're currently at in your business and wealth growth and how you can improve upon it. It's called your financial diagnostic score. It's completely free and you'll instantly get the results. 
So head over to TotalWealthScore.com right now and see where you can focus to grow your wealth. So when it comes to product development, there's two kind of pieces of language that float out there. And I would love to have your uh, definition of them and how they are the same or different. One of which is proof of concept and one of which is minimal viable product. Can you explain, are they different? Yeah, so there's actually a third one that I like to use. Oh, okay. Uh, in, that's kind of an in-between, which I call a prototype. Now, okay. there's a, uh, so these are basically stages in a product development. Yes. Uh, uh, stages in a product's development. Uh, so if, and there's other ways of classifying it. There's the TRL or the technology readiness level that goes from like one to 10. Uh, but I like to keep things simple because, uh, you know, to keeping things simple makes things more, tangible, I guess. So the way we define it here is a proof of concept is where you tear down the product into its most risky components Yes. and prove them out first. So if I were building hypothetically a rocket ship that's going to go to Mars, Mm -hmm. I'd probably build just the engine or the propulsion system first and make sure that it's giving me the right amount of thrust that's required to reach escape velocity to escape Earth's gravitational field, completely make, making this up, okay? I'm not a, uh, a rocket scientist. Well, listen, I'm, I'm buying what you're selling right now, <laughs> so you sound good. Okay, so th- this would this is what I would call the uh, 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 proof of concept. Once this is done, we would go into what we call a prototype, where okay. we would now build a rocket ship that might actually go to Mars, but it would be held together with glue and duct tape. Right. So it's something that works, but it's not something that you're going to be able to sell. Right. And test it out. Make sure it's going to Mars. Yeah. Next step, once this is established, we build an MVP. An MVP is, uh, people often uh, uh, have misconceptions about this. A minimum viable product is a product that's bare bones to enter the market. So if I were to build the same rocket ship to go to Mars, I'd have to figure out where each component in that rocket ship comes from. Like which supplier does it come from or where is it being custom manufactured? Ideally, I would like to have two suppliers for each component there. So yep. we call that a redundant supply chain. So if something happens to one supplier, we have it from the other one. Uh, we would want to make it uh, like go through all kinds of certification, safety testing, things like that. So we know it's not going to blow up in, as it passes uh, through the Earth's atmosphere or something like that. And we want to do a pilot batch of say 10 units or 100 units, the numbers governed by what kind of product it is, uh, to make sure that our entire process to manufacture this product at scale, Yes. if it's a software, it's uh, to ensure the software application is able to handle the kind of workloads uh, that it's expecting. We have to test that out, that it's able to handle uh, its intended scale. That's when an MVP is done. So, and there's a, a reason why we uh, incrementally de-risk it in this way. And sometimes a product would have multiple POCs before it goes to its first prototype. Sometimes yeah. just a single one. But um, the idea is to uh, front load the risk. So product development is inherently risky. So what we would, what we want to do is try the riskiest component first. If it fails, there's no point in investing in the rest of it. Right. Like you don't want to add belts and whistles to a bike that doesn't work. Yes. Right. So uh, the, that's the whole point. Okay. So you guys do this for software and for 
objects or things that do things, not just because yep. I think of software as kind of intangible, but you're also dealing with tangible. Mm -hmm. Does the process change at all, depending like is POC and prototyping and minimal vial concept, is that still applicable in software as it is in um, tangible things? Very much so. Can you explain where the similarities, because I have this picture in my head. So my touching, uh, testing the how much server space I need or where the where the security issues might be in the software. Like, what am I looking for in that versus testing different parts of an object? Uh, in the rocket case, does the propulsion work? If that's the most important thing. Yeah. So in in the case of a software, the again we identify the riskiest component first. So uh, let's find an example. Say we are building an application like Uber. Yes. What's the riskiest component in Uber? And I could be totally wrong in this, but like I would hazard a guess that the riskiest component in Uber is the algorithm that okay. identifies the closest driver yes. to you that will take you to your destination. Okay. So I would create that algorithm first and test it out in a simulated environment where I'm giving it uh, test cases of, uh, say I have uh, you, Wendy, trying to get picked up from your home, whereas I'm trying to get picked up from downtown Halifax and someone else is trying to get picked up from the airport and there's a pool of 10 drivers, mm -hmm. which driver does it pick first? And see if my end, like my algorithm, yeah. manifested as a software application is able to predict that. This piece of software has no front end. It has no scalable databases. It has nothing. It's just pure logic that's trying to identify the driver that's supposed to be selected. Okay. I would call the proof of concept. And the, my proof of concept being established here would be that the algorithm sound enough to handle the uh, where this, uh, or like which driver is being selected. Then I develop a prototype. My prototype would have like a very bare bones kind of a front end, looks janky, something you'd be embarrassed to show anybody but yourself. Yeah. Would be able to, and the back end might be, like I said, uh, held together by duct tape and glue, which means like you may not have a proper database. You might have everything in one monolithic server without any kind of microservices architecture, uh, which has to deal with like scalability of like variable loads and such and find a test group of say 100 people and 100 drivers or 100 people and 20 drivers in a neighborhood that you define of like say 20 city blocks and test it out in the field. Basically you build everything so that you can test out the functionality without the bells and whistles. You prove that, next step you make it pretty, you make the backend so that it has uh, in mon modern microservices architecture and security so that no one can break into it because now you're gonna have actual customer data and credit card numbers and whatnot. Right, yeah. uh, and uh, someday you might have a million users the next hour because the sporting event ends, you might end up with 4 million users. So you plan for that through like ramping up and down. That's where I threw in the word microservices. That's where that comes in. It spins up and down based on how much load there is. Uh, so that's uh, almost that's almost a supply or redundancy piece you were talking about with the physical tangible development. Yeah, pretty pretty much, pretty much. But uh, you know, the thing to be noted here is product development as a philosophy is the same whether the product is software, hardware, combination, uh, uh, products that have nothing to do with technology, such as like a bottle of water or like a pop 
Yeah. A product is a product is a product. Okay. And so uh, we apply the same product development philosophy, but translate into the technical specifics of that the disciplines involved there. So you have a hun- over a hundred startups or, or customers. Mm-hmm. And what's the average like? Where are they coming from? What are, and are and and how long are they working with you? Like, is it a kind of a transactional? You do one thing and you're done, or they you build one thing and then they want you to build something else? Like, how's that coming along? Yeah. So uh, right now, uh, about seventy percent of our customers are in the Toronto area. Yes. Uh, the rest come from anywhere else in North America, with the exception of two from overseas. Okay. Of the hundred and something, we hit a hundred in around mid-July. So I think we're at 110 or something right now. That's so awesome. Thank you. But of these, I think only about four or five customers never came back after the first project. Every single customer usually comes back after the first project for something more to add to that product. Or yeah. in a few instances to have a similar parallel product. Uh, now, to go back to the other question you had was, so usually our projects range any, uh, can range anywhere from like one week to, uh, uh, I think the longest we've done is six months. Oh, wow. But uh, if you look at the statistical average uh, uh, project here, uh, we do is for about six weeks. Nice. Costs about $30,000 Canadian. That's the average. Again, projects have range anywhere between, I think, just over $5,000 to about half a million dollars. Oh, fascinating. What has been your biggest challenge? So you're solving a real problem, obviously, with a hundred and some clients. Like, that's awesome. So you you nailed it. What has been the hardest part about building your company? Is it HR? Is it finding the talent to bring to the team or getting them to work together? Yeah, well, so uh, we are blessed with really good talent. And that's why I think the business model we have right now works only in places like Toronto. Hmm. or like Hamilton, which is kind of like the greater Toronto Hamilton area, because we're within about an hour's drive of about 10 different really good universities. And the talent pipeline is what keeps us alive. Hmm. Because not only are we inherently dependent on the talent pipelines, but we also give these uh, students that are graduating or even co-op students sometimes a really good opportunity to uh, like kickstart their career, having an exposure that to a very wide array of technologies and problems. And that's why strategically, like we, this kind of conference of multiple universities is available only in, I think, three other cities and uh, all three other uh, regions in North America, uh, uh, them being Los Angeles, uh, Boston, and New York City. So obviously those would be our natural expansion points. Uh, we just uh, started our second location in Los Angeles as of uh, like a couple months ago. Oh, wow, okay. Uh, starting to grow that out. It's, uh, but. Yeah, so that talent, uh, thankfully, is not a problem yet. I'm pretty sure we're going to hit some roadblocks. Uh-huh. Uh, so I'm hoping we don't do that. Uh, our biggest problem so far has been uh, as a young bootstrapped organization. So we are a service provider, essentially, and we don't fit into the conventional business models of software as a service uh-huh. or professional services. Yeah. We're not a product company. So what are we? Because we don't fit one of those socially acceptable silos, so to speak. And when I say socially acceptable, I mean socially acceptable to the financing world. Yes. Uh, we don't have access to capital at all. Mm. So this company was started purely like we had an initial investment 
from the university. So we used to be uh, uh, part of McMaster University, myself and my two co-founders, where uh, all three of us were working at McMaster University when we came up with the idea and we ran this operation sort of in uh, uh, as a rebellious force within the university for a little bit before we spun it out. And so the university was generous enough to invest some money in us. Yes. We were lucky there. And ever since we have been working on debt financing, essentially, and uh, we're lucky to, again, in Canada, have organizations such as BDC that finance uh, early stage companies like ours. So BDC has been one of our financiers. But uh, the rest is all like, uh, you know, against uh, real estate properties owned by the founders and uh, things like that, that we have borrowed against to have that initial cash flow. Then came the problem of growing really fast. So we started uh, uh, with just three people, uh, myself and my two co-founders, and now we have 28 full-time employees on payroll. So uh, we have to bandage our cash very, very carefully. Because mm-hmm. we can't just go to a capital partner and say, hey, here's a very viable business model that we've been running for a bit. Finance us through a safe note or convertible notes. You know, the uh, newsworthy investment that you see in the media of like product companies getting like tens or hundreds of millions from uh, venture capital that's not something we can ever access so our growth's going to be somewhat limited i guess by our operating profits in some ways though that you know you're building something based on real sales versus what i think what people will buy and sometimes that makes a difference too yeah Rightly or wrongly, yeah. That's the old school way of doing business, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that's interesting. Um, What haven't I asked you that someone who's listening to this podcast should know about innovation, product development, anything that you want, anything else you've learned? The uh, most important thing is, you know, we're, we're in the year 2022 right now. We're starting a business, especially at a business that is inherently reliant on a uh, product like a te- technology product has gotten super accessible. Yeah. Anybody with a great idea can build a business. Mm-hmm. Obviously, like, as per earlier discussion, you should validate that your idea is worth bringing yes. to market before you start. But there, and this is this has all been made possible, I would say, in the last decade with like uh, the advent of like very like thriving open source communities and uh, commodity hardware and tons and tons of really good knowledge and uh, uh, and, and information exchange forums. And most of the start things I learn are are from Reddit and Discord, which is uh, crazy if you think about it. Yeah. Very different from when I was in grad school, I worked on my PhD. That was, if you think about it, I graduated nine years ago. It wasn't that long ago, but words kind of evolved even in the last nine years. So Right now, we're in, a, uh, in we live in a world where it's very accessible to, uh, like very easy to start a uh, business. Mm-hmm. This wasn't the case ten years ago. This was definitely not the case twenty years ago, and fifty years ago, people couldn't even dream of it. Yeah, so, isn't that so much more accessible, as you say? Yeah. So you know, if uh, if your listeners are to uh, you know Kia. Uh, or retain one thing from this podcast. You know how they say, like, if you were to learn one thing today, you know, I would say dive in. Yeah. So with the warning that entrepreneurship is an addiction more than a profession. Once you're an entrepreneur, it's very hard to go back. Absolutely. <laughs> you become kind of unemployable once you've been your boss, own boss yep. for a while. Yep. 
uh, Sivajit, if someone wants to get a hold of you and talk about what you do and how that you could potentially help them, how do they get a hold of you? Uh, I'm very accessible on LinkedIn. Mm. Uh, I'm very accessible on uh, my website. Uh, uh, despite the fact that we've grown a fair bit as a company, uh, the phone number for Phylabs still remains my cell phone number. Although we have an office phone system, I have kind of fought my partners on the same. That number has to be my cell phone number. Mm-hmm. So just give that call and, uh, a number a call. Text me, uh, email me, subojit.phylabs.com, LinkedIn, smoke signals, whatever. I'm, I'm super accessible. <laughs> and that's fyelabs.com. Yep. So, Vijit, this has been an amazing conversation. I thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you so much for having me here, Wendy. It's an honor. Yeah, the real bottom line is uh, innovation as a service can help you get to market faster and smarter. Wow, there was just so much learning in this episode. Do you want more? I have a special offer for the right entrepreneur. A complimentary one-on-one coaching session that is all about you, your business, and your goals so that you can accelerate your business and start to accelerate the growth of your network. Head over to wealthcoachwithwendy.com. There you will find a letter that kind of outlines all the details of this offer and also an application form. We have an application form because there's such a limited number of, of slots that we're opening up for this that we want to make sure that the people that um, uh, do are successful in getting the slot we can make the biggest difference with. So head over to wealthcoachingwithwendy.com and apply today. Thanks.